Well, good evening, friends. It's lovely to see you again, and thank you very much for your patience as you've um, come night by night. And uh, thank you for your attention and for your interest, and it's so lovely to see you again this evening. So I'd like you to turn back to Ezekiel, uh, but this time to chapter 8, to chapter 8. And we're going to focus uh, on this chapter this evening. Uh, a, a relatively short chapter, 18 verses, uh, but uh, an awful lot in it. And uh, so with the Lord's help, we'll look at this wonderful chapter together this evening. Let me just remind you of what we've covered thus far uh, in the meetings. Uh, we looked on Monday evening at this vision of the glorious throne. You remember if you were there that we talked about this chariot throne vision that Ezekiel has by the river Kibar there in Babylon and he is brought to his face before uh, the glory of God. And what a healthy thing that is and what a wonderful place to be that is. Uh, prostrate before God uh, in awe of his glory. And then it's at that point that God begins to speak into his life and he's appointed as a witness and as a watchman and that's what we covered last night uh, with the Lord's help was this appointing of Ezekiel as a witness and as a watchman. And we heard the challenge from the word of God of being witnesses and watchmen in our day and generation to take the gospel message to those who so desperately need to hear it all around us. Now this evening, with the Lord's help, we're going to look at the sins of the nation. And that is what really chapter 8 is concerned with. It's going to be quite a solemn reading from chapter 8 tonight, but I trust encouraging too. And then tomorrow evening, God willing, we'll look at the restoration of the Jewish people, the restoration of the nation, as depicted in chapter 37. And then on the final evening, uh, we're going to just have a taster of the Millennial Temple, looking maybe at some highlights uh, in that last section of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, just taking some, some highlights, some tasters about the Millennial Temple. So it's chapter 8 tonight then, and before we read together, uh, before we move on, let's pray one more time together tonight. Heavenly Father, as we quieten our hearts and as we come in the attitude of prayer, we come with thanksgiving in our hearts, we come with gratitude because of thy lovely Son, the Lord Jesus, and all that he means to us and all that he has brought us into. We know that this evening, seated as we are here, we are seated spiritually with Christ in heavenly places. And we thank thee that we have every spiritual blessing in him. We thank thee, Father, that we who know and love thy Son, the Lord Jesus, are tonight redeemed and restored and ransomed and healed and forgiven. And Father, what a privilege it is to come before the open pages of thy word. Lord, we know that there are believers all over the world tonight, scattered in secret, afraid tonight, and they would just love to be with a group of believers whom they love, uh, hearing the word of God and spending time together. Lord, we pray that they would know thy nearness tonight. We pray, Lord, that wherever they are, that thou wouldst keep them safe from harm and that they would know something of thy presence and care and tender love toward them tonight. And we would want to extend uh, love to them, Lord, but we don't know them. They're known to thee. And we pray, Lord, that they might have a time of fellowship uh, with uh, the risen Lord Jesus uh, this evening, wherever they are. So, Father, we pray for thy blessing now as we turn to thy holy word in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me give you a, a structure for this evening for chapter 8. And uh, this is a chapter concerning visions. It's a transition chapter. 
In the chapters that are between what we've already covered and what we're covering tonight, Ezekiel is led to enact a number of very bizarre symbolic prophecies. And what I mean by symbolic prophecies is not that the content of the prophecies is symbolic, it's real and literal. But what I mean is that the method of communication is symbolic. The vast majority of the time, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament were called to orally deliver prophecy. That is, to preach, as it were, uh, either in the street or or in the marketplace or uh, in the open air, whatever they could do to make this oral message known. They were preachers, proclaimers of prophecy. And yet Ezekiel, in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, is led to enact certain symbolic acts. And uh, it's really very unusual. And it's why Ezekiel, well, there's many reasons Ezekiel stands out in the panoply of Old Testament prophets. But Ezekiel alone, really, uh, is given this unique task of acting out symbolic acts which teach the people something prophetic, something which is coming in the future. And we don't have time to study that tonight because we're going on to chapter 8. But, for instance, he's he's encouraged to take a brick and uh, to set it up as if it is Jerusalem, as if it's like a model of Jerusalem under siege. Jerusalem is going to come under siege, of course, by the Babylonians and had come under siege uh, by the Babylonians. And then he is uh, asked to cut all his hair off and to, to, to burn his hair and to scatter that burnt hair uh, all over the city. Very strange, very bizarre actions he's told to take. And they seem to us with our modern ears just so strange, so foreign to us. And yet here were symbolic acts. But now we're moving on to the visions. Now we're moving on to the visions that Ezekiel is given, and he is transported. So let me give you six outlines, six subheadings for this chapter. In verses 1 to 4, we're going to look at the transportation of Ezekiel. The transportation of Ezekiel. In verses 5 and 6, we're going to think about the treason. The treason that the people were committing. Verses 7 to 13, we're going to look at a temple defiled with idolatry, a temple defiled with idolatry. And then verses 14 and 15, we're going to see tears, tears that are wept for Tammuz. It's a false Babylonian god. We'll touch on that in a moment or two. And then verses 16 and 17, the tragedy of outright apostasy, the tragedy of outright apostasy. And then lastly, verse 18, the time has come for judgment. The time has come for judgment. So let's read the first four verses of Ezekiel chapter 8, the transportation of Ezekiel. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month. Now, uh, if we do our maths, we go back to the very start of Ezekiel, and we are now 14 months uh, exactly from uh, the, the, the beginning of the book. came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in mine house... And the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me. Then I beheld, and lo, a likeness as the appearance of fire. From the appearance of his loins even downward, fire. And from his loins even upward, as the appearance of brightness, as the color of amber. And he put forth the form of an hand, and took me by a lock of mine head, And the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, 
according to the vision that I saw in the plain. So now we're back in chapter 1 as he sees the glory of, the, of God, the glory of, of Almighty God, the Creator God, there in the temple. And we'll make a comment about that in a moment because the glory of God is not in verse 4 where we might expect it to be. Well, the transportation of Ezekiel, something absolutely remarkable. Here is a man who encounters a vision where an angelic being, a being of glory, comes and takes him by the hair of his head and transports him to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, nothing like this has ever happened to any of us here tonight. A question that you'll find in the commentators, of course, is this question of, of this experience and whether this was a real experience. Did, did an angel really come and really take Ezekiel by a lock of his head and really transport him physically through the air to Jerusalem? Or was this a visionary experience? And uh, two commentators that I like very much had differing views on this. Uh, Arnold Gabelin said he felt it really was an experience. He physically was picked up by his hair and taken off to Jerusalem. And he talked about uh, the way that God transported uh, Elijah. And he talked about the way that in the book of Acts he takes Philip, doesn't he? After he's encountered the Ethiopian eunuch. And it says that he was transported to Azotus. And so he says, well, there's scriptural references, there's scriptural reasons for believing that this was a real experience. But then others, uh, and, and Feinberg also says, well, he, he thinks it's a visionary experience, that he's taken in the visions of God, and I have to say that I err in that direction. But let me just give you a little bit of a justification for that and turn you on to chapter 11. Chapter 11, as this set of visions comes to an end. Chapter 11. Generally speaking, I think that literalism is the best default position for all interpretation of Scripture. If we can take something literally, we ought to take it literally. And I know that's the approach that your pastor will take here. And it's the approach that I would always take. But I think reading the text here in chapter 8, I think we can be confident that this is a visionary experience. And in chapter 11, read with me from verse 24. Afterwards, the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to them of the captivity. So the vision that I had seen went up from me, went up from me. Then I speak unto them of the captivity, all the things that the Lord had showed me. So it seems clear to me, friends, that he's having a visionary experience. And as it were, in the Spirit, he is being taken to Jerusalem. And when he is deposited back in Chaldea, he says, well, the Spirit, this Spirit of vision has gone up from me. But what an amazing experience to be taken by an angelic being back to the city that you were wrenched from. Remember, he was a priest. And remember that he wasn't able to fulfill his destiny, humanly speaking, and yet God had a different destiny in store for him as a prophet of God. But, you know, God had to communicate to Ezekiel what exactly was going on. What exactly was going on in the Jerusalem that God loved? In the Jerusalem where God had said, I will place my name there. My eyes and my heart are going to be there forever. What was going on? What was going on under the surface in this city of former glory? The city of David, the city of Solomon, the city of glory. What was going on in that city if you were to scratch under the surface? For that's what the angel does. He scratches under the surface of the temple of Jerusalem and allows Ezekiel this wonderful insight into the spiritual realities of the depth of sin and depravity that God's people had fallen to in the temple. And we'll touch on it as we go through. 
you need to know what's going on amongst those left behind. Do you remember the opening chapter of the book of Nehemiah? And Nehemiah loves Jerusalem and Nehemiah has a great concern for the things of God. And Nehemiah isn't selfish, he, he loves God's glory. And he hears a report, Jerusalem's in ruins. That city that God staked his divine reputation on, it's in ruins. It's rubble. It's a disaster zone. And his heart is heavy and it aches. This is the position that Ezekiel is about to be in when he witnesses what's going on in chapter 8 in his beloved city of Jerusalem. And not physically speaking as it was for Nehemiah, but spiritually speaking. Jerusalem's in ruins. In absolute ruins, spiritually speaking. So he's been transported. And what is he going to see when he finds, uh, sorry, what is he going to find when he gets there to the city of Jerusalem? Well, let's read verses 5 and 6. Let's read verses 5 and 6. This is the treason that they were committing. Then he said unto me, Son of man, there's that expression again, lift up thine eyes now the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes the way toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. He said furthermore unto me, Son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. Friends, three times, there's a structure to this chapter, three times we're going to read um, that phrase at the end of verse 6, thou shalt see greater abominations. As we get closer in to the center of the temple, the very center of worship, where God had said he would dwell, we're going to find greater and more depraved idolatry as we go in. Now that's exactly the opposite to the way that God designed his dwelling place. Do you remember back in the book of Exodus? And God has not dwelt with man since he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Since there was harmony between creature and creator in Eden. God hasn't dwelt with man. Since man found himself outside of the garden, barred uh, to entry by the cherubim and the flaming sword... And God's beginning his program of redemption through the unique Jewish nation. And he says, if you build this tabernacle according to the pattern that I show thee on the mount, I'm going to come and I'm going to speak with you and I'm going to meet with you and I'm going to dwell with you. And God's going to dwell with his people for the first time since the Garden of Eden. But if you were to walk in with me into that tabernacle, and of course we can't do a a study of the tabernacle tonight. But if you were to walk with me into that tabernacle, what would you find? You would find that generally speaking... From the outside to the inside, the materials around you get more and more precious. More and more precious. Now, of course, there's many, many detailed lessons and and beautiful foreshadowings of Christ in the tabernacle. But this is one of the most basic. The closer that you get to God, the closer that you get to the place of his dwelling, the closer that you get to the Holy of Holies, the materials become more and more precious. And then, of course, Solomon builds a temple for God. And exactly the same principle applies. The closer you get into that place of God's dwelling, the more precious, the more beautiful, the more ornate, and the more profound the experience as you go in to the tabernacle and to the temple. You know that as you walked into the tabernacle, as you walked into the temple, you were seeing physical things, physical things that told you about heavenly realities. You were learning divine lessons. You were learning heavenly lessons. You know that that's true of the church of the living God today? We have the pleasure and the privilege 
and the responsibility of belonging to a local company of believers, a local church. Most of you belong to this local church. Some of you might belong to other uh, local churches. But we all have a local company of believers that we belong to, or at least I hope we do. If there's anybody here tonight who's a Christian, who's born again, but isn't part of a local company of believers, then I would entreat you from God's word uh, to come in line with God's will and to join yourself to a scriptural local company of Christians. It's so important. But as we gather together, do you know, as we gather together tonight, friends, we have audiences. There are audiences watching us here tonight. Of course, the first and foremost is God himself. When we meet together as believers, the way that we worship, the way that we gather, it's all to do with pleasing God. It's all to do with pleasing God. He's the audience, if you like, first and foremost, the Trinitarian Godhead, the God of glory. So as we meet together, God is watching us. As we meet together, we're watching one another. We're watching one another. We set an example for one another. And so our fellow Christians are that second audience I would direct your attention to. So God and then our fellow Christians are watching us and watching our order and watching our behaviour in the house of God. So we've got God himself is watching us when we gather. And uh, fellow Christian believers, brothers and sisters are watching us when we gather. A sinful watching world is certainly watching us. A sinful watching world is certainly watching us. Now they might not be very interested in what's going on here tonight. But in our lives as believers, a watching world is watching us. They're looking on and paying close attention. Of course, we find that out most uh, poignantly when we trip up, don't we? And the unsaved notice. They notice. So God is watching us. We are watching each other. An un, a watching world of unsaved people is watching us. But you know, we learn too in 1 Corinthians 11 that the angels are watching us. That the angels are beholding our order and learning divine lessons from us. Just as you would go into the tabernacle and see things that tell you about heavenly realities, so you would walk into the temple and see things around you that tell you about heavenly realities, so you should be able to walk in to a gathering of born-again Christians and see things which teach you about heavenly realities. You know, there are only three physical things, three visible things that the Lord Jesus has asked us to do as, uh, as believers in him. Only three things. Very, very simple. And that's the Lord's Supper, to take physical bread and physical wine and remember him in his death and show forth his death until he comes. That's baptism by immersion uh, following salvation. And again, if there's anybody here tonight who's a born-again believer and hasn't yet been baptised and taken that step of obedience, I would just plead with you on the basis of the word of God to take that step without delay. And then thirdly, he's asked uh, sisters, Christian sisters, to cover their heads and, and, and Christian brethren uh, not to. And those are the three, the three physical symbols that we find in the New Testament. Very, very simple. Very, very basic. They're not asking a lot of us. But, you know, they teach heavenly realities. They teach and instruct heavenly realities just as it was to walk into the tabernacle or into the temple. You'd be taught heavenly truths. Well, he finds something altogether different. Because rather than finding the materials more and more precious, rather than thinking more and more about the holiness of God, God is being more and more traduced and offended the closer you get to his supposed dwelling place there in the temple in Jerusalem. He sees this image. I want to take you back to Second Chronicles, please. Second Chronicles in chapter 33. Second Chronicles in chapter 33. And I want to take you back to a very low point a very low point indeed in the history of Israel. 
the history particularly of the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. And this is the reign of the wicked king Manasseh. Second Chronicles chapter 33, and let me read from verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem, but did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Then just listen to this. What an indictment on his reign. Verse 3, for he built again the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. And he reared up altars for Baal and made groves and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Can it get any worse? Yes, verse 4. Also he built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said in Jerusalem, shall my name be forever. God had made it so clear. This is a place for me. This is a place for my name. I've only chosen, I've only elected one location on planet Earth where my name is going to be set, and it's Jerusalem. And in that very place, Manasseh made the wicked, sinful choice to erect altars to foreign gods. It's disgusting. And then down to verse 9. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen. Worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. It's so sad. You know, he repents. He repents. God speaks to Manasseh. And Manasseh repents. But, you know, the damage has been done. The damage has been done. Turn with me to Jeremiah, please. Jeremiah and chapter 15. Jeremiah and chapter 15. There was personal restoration for Manasseh. Despite his wickedness, there was personal restoration. But, you know, sometimes there are sins that have consequences. There are sins that have far-reaching consequences. And although we might be personally restored before the Lord, those consequences cannot be undone. And Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 1 says this, Then the Lord said unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Talking about his own people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Why? Down to verse 4. And I will cause them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. What did he do? He erected altars to foreign gods in the house of God. And that's exactly what we're finding here uh, in Ezekiel. And the mask is dropping. He's being able to go back in vision to the city of Jerusalem and see there this image of jealousy. Of course, it's called an image of jealousy because it provokes God to jealousy. I am a jealous God, says the Lord. Now, of course, this points us forward. It points us forward to a coming day in Earth's history. And I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 13, please. Sorry, just uh, before we do that, turn back to Genesis 1. Turn back to Genesis 1 for a moment or two. I want to think for a moment about this idea of an image, about this idea of an image. Images are very powerful, aren't they? Images are very powerful. Do you remember, uh, maybe four or five years ago now, was the beginning of a great migration crisis across Europe. And people were and still are today, aren't they, leaving North Africa and uh, Middle Eastern countries in droves to try to make their way to France and Germany and the UK 
And at the very beginning of that crisis, there was just no idea at all how to deal with it. I'm not sure we've progressed much further since then, but it was a dreadful, dreadful uh, epidemic of migration. And do you remember, I think you will, do you remember there was a particular photograph taken? There was a photograph taken of a little boy who had tragically drowned at sea. He drowned at sea and his body washed up on a Turkish beach. And somebody took a photograph of that. And it was, on the, head, it was the headline photograph of every major national newspaper uh, across the world, really, the next day. Now, you could stand back from a photograph like that and you could say, well, tragic as it is, little children die every day all over the world. So why was this photograph so poignant and so powerful? Because we all automatically understood. Nobody had to tell us. Nobody had to explain it. Nobody had to put a caption underneath to explain that what this was telling us was something about the whole crisis. It wasn't just about this boy and his family, although it was that, of course. But it was a commentary upon the whole crisis because images are very powerful. Images communicate and captivate the human heart. They communicate to us and they captivate. I used to commute into London on the underground every day, an hour in and an hour out. And what were people doing? Row upon row in the tube, staring at screens for an hour, captivated by images. So what does it mean, this image? And it's a theme in the Bible, of course. Let's go back to Genesis 1. Now, do you remember that uh, one of the great motivating forces behind that um, migration wave was the cruelty and inhumanity of the group known as ISIS. Now, it's not, I don't really think it's the place for me to go into a group like that tonight, but you all know the sort of things that they did and the sort of things that they continue to do. How were they able to be so inhuman and how are they able to be so cruel? Because they have a fundamentally different view than Bible-believing Christians about the value of human life. Why is it that we, as Bible-believing Christians, are so uncompromising about issues like abortion or euthanasia? Why is it that we are so uh, uncompromising about the value of human life, no matter at what stage it appears on the, the stage of human life? It all comes back to this, really, this manifesto of mankind in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And um, let me just... read to you from verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. God created man in his own image. Now, of course, the fall of mankind takes place after this, but what we find, even after the fall of mankind, is that this fundamental of human existence does not change. Every life that is conceived today is still made in the image of God, still made in the image of God, despite the fall, despite all our sin, despite the fact that that image is marred and spoiled, every life that is conceived is made in the image of God. And then forward, please, to Exodus in chapter 20. Exodus in chapter 20. So that's where we start with images. We start with the fact that we, as human beings, are made in the image of God. And then we turn forward to the law Exodus chapter 20. And the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, begins like this. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So verse 3 very clearly is prohibiting idolatry. You cannot worship any other god than the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God, the creator of all creation. But then verse 4 is slightly distinct from that because verse 4 is not so much about idolatry but about false worship. About seeking to worship the true God in a wrong way. Verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. This was an image of jealousy erected in the temple in Ezekiel chapter 8 because God is a God of jealousy and this fundamental commandment was being uh, flaunted. This fundamental commandment was being disobeyed there uh, in the temple. Well we could move on couldn't we and we could look at it all the way through the Old Testament, this theme of the image but just to highlight Daniel 3, there's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and they will not bow They will not bow before what? Before the image. The image set up there in the plains of Jura there in Daniel chapter 3. But then let me take you to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Colossians 1 and some of the most sublime verses in all of the New Testament. Colossians 1 and verse 15. Speaking about our lovely saviour, Paul is led to write, Who is the image? who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. I'd love to continue reading. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture, but we'll just stop there for the moment. He is the only image of the invisible God. The Lord Jesus Christ himself has made God visible. You know, I'm sure that you, like me, sometimes you you read the Old Testament and you just think, oh, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been there when the walls of Jericho fell. I wish I could have been there when the waters of the Red Sea parted. I wish I could have been there when the Shekinah glory of God came down and dwelt in the tabernacle according to promise. I wish I could have been there uh, to see the manna fall or to see the quail come into the camp. All sorts of wonderful, dramatic events. But there isn't a believer here tonight who, if you were given the choice, wouldn't say, no, I'd rather go to some quiet corner in Bethsaida or Capernaum or Nazareth or Jerusalem and meet the risen Lord or meet the living Savior before his death and be able to reach out and touch him like the woman at the well or the woman with the issue of blood or to have a conversation with him like Nicodemus. There isn't a person in the hall tonight who wouldn't choose that. Because to to, to have a conversation with Jesus was to have a conversation with God. To touch the Lord Jesus was to touch God himself. The image of the invisible God. He fulfilled that desire of God that mankind should be in his image. Because he was fully man. But for us, he made God visible. He was fully God. What a wonderful saviour we have this evening. The image of the invisible God. But what a contrast with the sin, the filth, the wickedness of Ezekiel chapter 8. But turn with me to the future, to a day that is yet to come, to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, we won't be able to spend long on this, but just to touch on it. Revelation chapter 13. We could uh, just as easily turn to 2 Thessalonians 2 and the man of sin 
but we'll, we'll read here from Revelation 13. And this is events taking place during the reign of the Antichrist in the period of time we call the Tribulation. Revelation chapter 13, and let's read from verse 13. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. And then listen to this. Saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And then before we read on, just remember what happened. Just remember what happened at the very beginning. Remember that mankind was made in the image of God and mankind was animated, wasn't he, by the breath of God. And we read on. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship, the image of the beast should be killed. We've seen it all before. We saw it in Daniel 3. We saw it even, I believe, when Mordecai refused to bow before Haman as Haman erected himself up against the people of God, just as Nebuchadnezzar had done. Friends, we're dealing here with ancient truths, with things that have always been true in the great conflict of the ages uh, between God and those forces that oppose him. Well, let's read on in our chapter, and we'll turn from this treasonous image on now to this temple defiled with idols. And let's read from verse 7, chapter 8 and verse 7. And he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. He said unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw. And behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. Imagine the sight. Into the temple. The temple of the living God. And there are these little rooms covered in disgusting, horrible images of beasts and insects. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel, or the elders. And in the midst of them stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery, or every man in his room of pictures, one translation puts it. For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again. And here we have the same refrain, And thou shalt see greater abominations than they do. You know, Ezekiel would have been, I think, emotionally exhausted by this point. To see the low ebb that his people have come to, and he could think, surely it can't get any worse than this. Then the elders of Israel, in these rooms of horrible pictures, worshipping these disgusting, abominable images, waving censers as if, as if to offer incense to these false gods, it just would have broken his heart. I wonder, friends, if my heart's ever broken. I wonder if my heart's ever broken for the falsehood, for the falsehood of false Christendom all around us. Friends, we see all around us false Christendom on every hand. And we see images. And we see incense. 
and we see things so unfitting for the house of God all around us? And does it break our hearts to see it? Well, Ezekiel's being brought up close and personal with it in its worst form. You know, what about our, our, our society today? I, I went into a bookshop in Edinburgh. It's a wonderful Christian bookshop. It's really the only Christian bookshop in Scotland that I could uh, heartily recommend. It's absolutely tiny. It's called B. McCall Barber Christian Bookshop. It's on George IV Bridge. And um, you get a diploma if you find it. It really is a tiny wee place. And um, you go up a spiral stone staircase up into this um, bookshop. And when I tell you that the bookshop isn't much bigger than the platform, I'm not exaggerating that. Run by a a very elderly brother and sister, Theodore and Grace Danson-Smith. He's now with the Lord and Grace is still uh, doing her best to keep it going. And actually a brother from Northern Ireland goes over um, who's in the Irish Evangelistic Band. Uh, he goes over and helps her. But it's a wonderful bookshop and you can get very sound literature. And, um, but t- to give you an idea, you can go in there and buy a book new off the shelf that was put there in the 70s and nobody's ever bought. I've done that. Uh, it's a remarkable place. I went to a, a shelf with it, which it had a, a basket of tracts and I just wanted to have a browse through. I was just uh, enjoying myself, having a look around and I thought, can I have a, a look through these tracts? And she combed the dust off the top of these tracks and let me have a a rifle through. And one of them caught my attention uh, because I think it's probably the least snappy title of a tract I've ever seen in my life. And it was entitled this, The Ensnaring Effects of That Which Is Visible. The Ensnaring Effects of That Which Is Visible. Now, I wouldn't hand that out on the high street of my local town. I'm not sure the average unsafe person would know what it was about. But it was very interesting to read it. Because it was all about how, as human beings, we are so easily ensnared by the visible. So easily ensnared by that which we can see and feel and touch. But do you know what struck me? I'm not here tonight to to preach to you about televisions or, or, or cinemas or anything like that. I'm not here to speak about that. But you know, this tract about the ensnaring effects of that which is visible was written well before there would ever be a television in every home or a smartphone in every hand, and an absolutely unrelenting onslaught of entertainment 24-7. Now, you can't tell me that Satan isn't pleased with that. That Satan isn't pleased with that. It's a masterstroke. Because Christians have never been more distracted than they are today. I speak to myself. Never been more distracted than they are today. The ensnaring effects of that which is visible. Well, here we have a temple totally defiled with idols. Now, one person is highlighted for special attention. Uh, Turn back with me um, to verse 11. And in the midst of them stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Now, why has that one man been highlighted for us? I wouldn't have been able to tell you that until a week or so ago when I was studying for this meeting. I'd never noticed it before. But you know, when I did... It really affected me. It's so sad why this man was highlighted. Let me take you back to 2 Kings and chapter 22. 2 Kings and chapter 22. Second Kings 22. Do you remember there was a wonderful occasion when the book of the law was rediscovered? When the book of the law was found, physically found and rediscovered in the temple... Well, Jazaniah is the son of the man who was center stage in that affair. 
Let's read from verse 10. And Shaphan, so this is Jazaniah's father. Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. So faced with the book of the law of God, he was convicted and repented. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, uh, so that would have been Jazaniah's brother, and Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Azahiah a servant of the king, saying, here's a wonderful verse, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto all that which is written concerning us. This is a wonderful moment in the history of God's people as they rediscover the book of the law of God and their attitude is, let's get back to the book. Let's get right back to the book. Tearing their clothes, repenting and saying, whatever is written here, we must begin again to do. Wonderful moment, really, of national revival. And yet that man's son, that man's son is in a little room surrounded by insects and disgusting beasts on the wall and he's swinging his censer of incense and worshipping them. There's no guarantees, is there? That's just one generation when truth hasn't been passed on. Just one generation. Temple defiled with idols. The Lord seeth us not, they say. He doesn't see us in our little rooms. Men love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. What are they forgetting? Do you remember the lesson we learned on Monday night? The wheels were covered with what? With eyes. Because the wheels could go anywhere and see everything. The omniscience and omnipresence of God. They were denying it. He doesn't see us here. We'll get away with this in our little rooms of pictures. And yet God sees it all. And even is showing Ezekiel the prophet exactly what's going on under the surface. Well, let's read on. And we'll see now this curious incident of the tears. The tears of the women that were wept for Tammuz. Let's read verses 14 and 15. Greater abominations. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Can you feel the indignation in the heart of God? Hast thou seen this, son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. So we're not finished. We're not finished. Again, I think he would have been emotionally exhausted by this point. Here we see these women, and they're weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz is a Babylonian god, and this god is the god of spring vegetation. And the idea is that the, the vegetables and the plants and the, the, the floral life that springs up in the spring, well, of course, what happens in the winter? Well, it dies. And then it comes back again in the spring. And you know, some people... Uh, who criticize the Christian faith and the things that we hold dear, they say to us, you know, you believe in a God of the gaps. You believe in a God of the gaps. You know, the ancients used to say, uh, we don't understand the phenomenon we see around us. We don't understand lightning. Oh, it must come from God. And uh, we don't understand great storms and great waves. And we don't understand the seasons. It, It must all come from this mythical God that we're going to make up and concoct in our minds. Nothing could be further from the truth for Bible believers. We believe in the God of the whole show. We believe in the God who animates everything and upholds and sustains everything by the word of his power. We don't believe in a God of the gaps. 
And yet here is a false god. And Tammuz is a god of the gaps. They don't understand how it could be that vegetation could spring up and look so full and look so healthy in the spring and it's dead in the winter, but next spring it comes up again. And, you know, they related this to death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. They had created for themselves a false god who died and rose again called Tammuz. And one of the uh, ceremonies, one of the rituals associated with this was that the women would make themselves cry uh, as a, a show of weeping for the death of Tammuz in the winter time, And they would make themselves cry and pretend that they were lamenting for the death of Tammuz so that they could celebrate in the spring when everything comes to life again. How ridiculous. You know, I must tell you, uh, and I'm not here to attack anybody or, or, or a system, um, but I had the opportunity to spend time in Israel and, um, and I was there for about eight weeks. And I remember going to the Garden of Gethsemane, what's identified as the Garden of Gethsemane. And I remember seeing people there who are associated with a certain uh, branch of professing Christendom, a big, a big uh, coachload of, of people. And I remember one of them kneeling down underneath an olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sorry, it's quite... It's an upsetting thing. Kneeling down in the Garden of Gethsemane and he pulled a little plastic vial out of his pocket and he put tears in his eyes like that. And then they came down his face and he got his friends to take a photograph of him kneeling in prayer underneath this tree uh, in the very place where our Lord pleaded, didn't he? And he said, uh, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And here's this man crying crocodile tears for a photograph for the folks back home. That makes me think of this here in Ezekiel chapter 8. Just the affrontery and the offence to a true and living God who went to, the Cal- went to the cross of Calvary for us. Satan's a counterfeiter. Satan is a counterfeiter. He has no original ideas. Death and resurrection. Well, they were worshipping a false death and a false resurrection there in that little room these sad and deceived women. Then verses 16 and 17, as we draw our thoughts to a close. Verses 16 and 17. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And here we're reaching a climax. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord. With their backs toward the temple of the Lord. They've literally and figuratively turned their backs on God and their faces toward the east. There's plenty of people in the world today praying toward the east every day. Praying toward the east and they worship the sun toward the east. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger, and lo, they put the branch to their nose. The tragedy of apostasy, just as we bring our thoughts to a close tonight. Between the porch and the altar, this is a very sacred place, a very sacred place uh, indeed. Let me read to you uh, a verse from Joel chapter 2. You don't need to turn there. Just one verse from Joel chapter 2 and verse 17 
Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? The very place where God called upon the priests of his people to weep for the sins of their people are these 25 men. Now that would be the 24 Levitical houses and the great high priest making 25. And they've turned their backs on God and they're worshipping the sun. The heavens declare the glory of God, not their own glory. They're worshipping the sun. Moses had warned about this so long ago. So, so long ago. Turn with me just briefly to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 15. And Moses supplies this warning. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude. And that really means you, you didn't see an image. You didn't see a likeness. You saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Lest you corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. And then he adds a very specific, very prescient, almost prophetic warning in verse 19. And lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun... And the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. Moses knew. Moses was given insight by God into the fact that his people would one day be tempted to worship the sun. People who'd been given such privilege, people who had been given such unique insight into the heart of God. They'd been given the law, they'd been given the covenants, they'd been given the promises, they'd been given miracles, they'd seen God do remarkable things on the face of the earth and he'd never let them down and he'd always been faithful to them. And here they are with their backs to his temple and their eyes to the sun that he created, worshipping it and then putting the branch to the nose. Now, that does puzzle commentators, but on the whole, they tend to think it's really like a an offensive gesture that you might make towards somebody. An offensive gesture. Backs turned to God and this offensive gesture made to him. We don't need you. Jerusalem's been captured by the Babylonians and therefore you can't help us. We're turning to Shamash, the Babylonian god of the sun. Maybe he'll help us. But we've turned our back on you. The time has come for judgment now. We'll read the last verse of the chapter. Ezekiel chapter 8, the time has come for judgment. Therefore, will I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. What a statement. What a sentence to read. It's the same God that we believe in today. It's the same God that you and I worship It's the same God that you and I will sing to in a few moments in a a closing hymn. It's the same God who said of his own people, if they cry to me, I'm not going to hear them. I'm not going to answer them. The time has come for judgment. We talked yesterday about the fact that we have been given a commission to be witnesses. And part of that is to warn those around us who are not believers in the Lord Jesus that judgment is coming. 
I wonder if there's anybody in the hall here tonight who hasn't yet placed their faith and trust in Jesus and who hasn't been forgiven of all their sin. If that's the case, then for you tonight, judgment is coming and it cannot be avoided and it cannot be stopped. And one day it's going to catch up with you and you'll have to stand before this true and living God. But you know, let me just finish with this. I want to turn you to the little book of Nahum. Nahum. And depending on how your Bible is laid out, uh, Nahum chapter 1 verse uh, 6. Nahum chapter 1 verse 6. You might have the closing verses of Micah on the same page. But let me first of all look to Nahum. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 6. What a solemn verse. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. The answer to the question is clear. Who can stand before his indignation? No one can stand. Friends, all of us here tonight, if we were to be judged on the basis of our performance, none of us could stand, could we? None of us could stand, could we? And yet, let me direct your attention to the closing verses of Micah. Might be on the same page or just one page back. And a wonderful verse. Micah 7 and verse 18, speaking of exactly the same God. This wonderful verse. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. I was studying the Minor Prophets recently and I know that David's embarking on a series in the Minor Prophets with you. And I found that time and again there were two themes that came to mind as I read the Minor Prophets. They're very different one from the other but there were certain common themes and and one very basic one was this. Judgment is coming but mercy is still available. Judgment is coming but mercy is still available. Do you know, friend, that tonight if you are under condemnation, if you're still headed for the judgment of God... There's a God in heaven who delights in mercy. He delights in mercy and he pardons iniquity. And every single Christian in the room tonight is testimony to that fact. And every Christian would be able to stand up tonight and tell you, he pardoned my iniquities. And actually in the measure of sin, my sins were just as bad as those men with their backs turned to God, worshipping the sun. That was me and that was you. And God has spoken so kindly to us in Christ and saved us and washed us and cleansed us and redeemed us from all of the filth and wickedness that had accrued in our lives. Friends, this is the God that we worship. A God who delights in mercy despite all of our sin. Amen.